0: Okay, my clock is now hitting 9 30 so let's get started good morning and welcome to the calvary community church sunday school class i'm david kaposha we're continuing on in our chronological study of the bible and we are moving right now through the books of samuel first and second samuel specifically we're in first samuel right now and last week we learned about the famous battle of david and goliath we saw how that account is not so much about David and his bravery, but about the Lord and his power, even through weak vessels like young shepherds. This week, though, we're going to learn how everything just became roses, fluffy bunnies, and rainbows for David after that, and how he lived happily ever after. Of course, I'm just kidding. No, this week we're actually going to learn how God took his specially anointed one, David, this righteous hero of Israel, and he put him into a period of continual hardship and danger. You see, even though David does nothing wrong, he's about to start living a life on the run in Israel. Now why is this? It's because David's king, King Saul, the one that David loves and wants to serve, actually turns against David, treats him as an enemy, and tries to kill him. But God has not only ordained these trials for David, but he's also ordained the deliverance, Not from the trials at least not initially but deliverance through the trials and a major part of the deliverance that God has ordained for David comes via a special friend that God raises up for David and that friend is Saul's own son Jonathan today's lesson is all about how Jonathan and others warn and protect David in the midst of his trials what was Jonathan's relationship with David how did God use Jonathan to deliver David and what can we learn as the Spirit of God teaches us from this section of Scripture what can we learn and apply to our lives today that's what we want to find out so let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time of study let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for this word which is our food we need it we need the encouragement of it and we need the encouragement of one another thank you Lord for this opportunity that I can share some encouragement And I can give some instruction, but I I pray for your empowerment. I pray for your assistance. I need your help to be able to declare this helpfully and accurately and clearly. And Spirit, I pray that you would transform your people by it. That's what we're meant to do in reaction to the word. So I pray that you'd work powerfully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, please take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18 is where we're starting today. We were in 1 Samuel 17 last time. That's where we heard the account of David and Goliath. Remember that right after that successful duel, Israel pursues the Philistines who had all fled, and Israel kills many of them and plundered the Philistine camps. At the end of that battle, Saul brings David into his presence, asks about David's identity and lineage, and we're picking up right after those events in 1 Samuel 18. So follow along with me as I read the whole chapter of 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 30. Let's see what the word of God says. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him or set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, And he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord, that is Yahweh, was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and then appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for Yahweh was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me, and fight Yahweh's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand let the hand of the philistines be against him but david said to saul who am i and what is my life or my father's family in israel that i should be the king's son-in-law so it came about at the time when mirab saul's daughter should have been given to david that she was given to adriel the mahatholite for a wife now michael saul's daughter loved david when they told saul the thing was agreeable to him saul thought I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down two hundred men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael his daughter for a wife. And Saul saw and knew that Yahweh was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. And the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, And it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. All right, well, in studying this text, as always, we are employing the inductive Bible study method, which is observe, interpret, and apply. So we're going to start with just observations, just looking at the details that appear in the text. So let's see what we can observe. Notice that in verse 1 we meet a new person, a new important person in the Bible, and that is Jonathan, the son of Saul. Actually, Jonathan is not new at this point in 1 Samuel. Jonathan actually first appears in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and we've looked at those passages before that we weren't able to cover the section specifically about Jonathan. But it is important that we get some of the background from those chapters because we learn in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, first of all, that Jonathan is Saul's oldest son which means according to the custom of kingship at that time who should be the next king in Israel after Saul well Jonathan he's the oldest son he should be the next king he was basically the crown prince and Jonathan probably wore garments and equipment befitting such status i mean you're not going to make the crown prince walk around like a basic peasant soldier no he's going to be he's going to look like a prince We also learn from these chapters that Jonathan is a man of bravery and faith, faith in Yahweh. If you remember, 1 Samuel 13 is where Saul fails in a big way before Yahweh because he is not willing to wait for Samuel at Gibeah. He's very fearful, and so he offers the sacrifice without Samuel. It's in the very next chapter that we hear uh, uh, an account of what Jonathan does. Jonathan actually initiates deliverance from this Philistine horde that is gathering to attack Saul and Israel through a courageous action. What Jonathan and his companion, an armor-bearer, what they do is that, well, Jonathan says, God is able to deliver by many or by few. Why won't he be able to deliver with us? So he and his armor-bearer, they both climb up a steep cliff to the Philistine garrison at Michmash. And once they, once they climb all the way up this cliff, they then kill 20 Philistine warriors all by themselves. And that's quite itself, uh, that's a feat, considering they just climbed this, this cliff. But then they kill these 20 warriors, and this slaughter sets off a panic in the Philistine army, who all flee and begin to attack one another. When Saul and the rest of Israel realize what's taking place, they gather up and they pursue the Philistines, and God brings about a great victory. Now I report that event to you because, doesn't it sound familiar? You have one guy who's willing to trust Yahweh, and he, it, he accomplishes a remarkable but small victory, and it leads to an even greater victory in which all Philistia is defeated. Isn't that exactly what just happened with David and Goliath? The same thing that had already happened with Jonathan. Now these details about Jonathan then should be in our minds as we see him again here at the beginning of 1 Samuel 18. Now we see in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 18 that Jonathan has special regard for David. It just seems to appear out of nowhere. But it says here in our verse that Jonathan's soul was knit to David's and that Jonathan loved David as himself. Now this is pretty poignant. This description of soul knitting, obviously metaphorical, is the idea that Jonathan feels a kinship, a closeness to David, as if someone had taken their two inner selves and tied them together. Or actually... Or knit them together, so that the threads of Jonathan and the threads of David, as it were, they could no longer be separated. They're interwoven with one another. That's how close they are. And this expression goes along with the second description given here, Jonathan loved David as himself. That is, Jonathan cared for David just like a person cares for himself and for his own body. Jonathan has a deep and genuine affection for David. And by the way, the Torah commanded that all Israelites were to have that kind of love for one another. You were to love your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan definitely feels that for David. Now notice what this love from Jonathan to David causes Jonathan to do in verses 3 and 4. It says Jonathan makes a covenant with David. That is a solemn agreement of love and faithfulness and care to one another. Jonathan also takes off his own robe. He takes off his armor, his belt, his sword, his bow, and he puts them on David. But Jonathan isn't the only one with new regard for David. Verse 2 says that Saul makes David a permanent member of Saul's court. Now, we had heard about this in summary fashion in previous chapters in 1 Samuel, but now we see how it actually happened. It was after the battle of David and Goliath. He not only makes him so that he can't go home anymore, but he appoints David as a commander in Saul's army. And what's the result? According to verse five, wherever David goes, he prospers. Whatever battle you send him, he just does well. And all the people approve of David, and they approve of Saul's appointment of David as commander. But then notice verses six and seven. It says that something takes place after David killed the Philistine. Now, who's this Philistine, singular? Well, the one we just talked about in 1 Samuel 17. That has to be Goliath. So right after the battle with with Goliath, right after Israel has returned from slaughtering the Philistines, that, that battle, that victory that was initiated by David's action, the armies return to the cities of Israel and the lady folk, who literally have been guarding the fort at home, while all the men were fighting, they were, they were at home in the cities, they come out of the cities singing and dancing. I mean, it's a great time of joy. Why wouldn't they want to do that? But what is it that the women say? Well, they sing this little song with the words, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, is this literally true? Has David slain tens of thousands at this point? Uh, probably not. I mean, there's just been one battle that David's been part of. He did initiate a great victory, but as far as we know, he didn't kill tens of thousands. But still, what is the idea of this song? Well, it's that David is a greater and more important warrior than Saul. And Saul didn't miss that message, In fact what's his reaction according to verses eight and nine it says he became very angry and he also became suspicious of David as a threat to the kingdom as a threat to Saul's kingdom poignantly in verse 10 we see the very next day that evil spirit of God from God it comes mightily upon Saul causing him to rave Now David attempts to do what David had done previously for Saul. He plays the harp to try and soothe Saul's troubled mind. But what does Saul attempt to do? Verse 11, we hear that Saul has a spear in his hand, and he decides, I'm going to pin David to the wall with this spear in David's gut. The end of the verse actually says Saul tries to do this twice. But both times, David is able to escape. Now notice verse 12. It says that Saul became afraid of David. And we can even, we even hear the reason. It says, because Yahweh was with David, but had departed from Saul. Even Saul can tell this is true. Yahweh's with him, but he's not with me anymore. I'm afraid of that guy. So in verse 13, Saul decides upon a new action. He decides, I'm going to get David away from me. I'm going to put him over the army, you know, send him way over there. Hopefully he'll just disappear into obscurity, not really be a bother to me anymore. Make David go fight. Well, this tactic for getting rid of David doesn't really work because what happens? David just becomes more successful wherever Saul sends him. And this only makes Saul even more afraid. People of Israel, meanwhile, they're only loving David more and more. And we know how, do- how Saul feels about the support of the people. He craves it. And they seem to be loving David more. Now in verses 17 to 21, Saul comes up with a new plan. A clever plot to get rid of David via the Philistines. I won't kill David. I'll let the Philistines kill David. The way I'm going to do this, Saul says to himself, is I'm going to try and get David to be my son-in-law. And in um, obtaining that position and maintaining that position, he's going to put himself in danger and hopefully get killed. That's Saul's thinking. Don't forget that Saul previously promised that he would have David marry into the royal family as a reward for killing Goliath. But David protests at the idea of marrying into Saul's family, the royal family of Israel. And why is that? Why doesn't David want to? Notice verses 18 and 23, where we see the same sentiment expressed. David's response is basically, who am I that I should marry into the royal family? I don't come from a great prestigious family in Israel, and I'm poor. How could I present a proper bride price for Saul's daughter, who's basically a princess? Now I remember in that culture, it was customary for a husband's family to provide a lavish gift or bride price for the wife's family upon the two getting married. The idea was to provide compensation for taking away a productive member uh, productive and valued member of the household. So David says, "How could I ever provide a proper bride price for Saul's daughter when I'm a nobody? But it turns out that Saul's daughter Michael, loves David and wants to marry him. So Saul comes up a way to deal with David's bride price concerns, and we see that in verse 25. He communicates to David via messengers, "The only bride price I want, David, is a hundred dead Philistines. You go kill those Philistines and bring me their foreskins as proof of your deed and we'll consider the bride price settled. This plan pleased Saul because he thought David would surely die trying to obtain this bride price. But verse 26 says that the proposal pleased David too. And what happens? Verse 27, David and his men, they go out, and they kill not 100 Philistines, but 200 Philistines, and they bring back double the bride price to Saul. And so Saul marries off his daughter, Michael, to David, as promised, for the bride price, and what does he realize after it all? Verse 28, he sees Michael's love for David, sees how his scheme turned out, and he realizes again, for the third time in our passage, Yahweh is with David. And this just makes Saul, again, for the third time in our pra- passage, even more afraid of this rising star in Israel. Really, everything that Saul tries to hurt David only ends up helping David. Jonathan, Michael, the people of Israel, Saul's servants, they all love David more and more, and God blesses David more and more too. All right, now that we've made observations on this passage, let's go to the second step of inductive Bible study, and that's interpretation. We want to bring together these basic details we've observed and try and answer questions that are not explicitly or directly answered by the text. So let's ask a few questions. First, Why is it that everyone loves David? I mean, it's pretty clear in our passage, but why? Well, clearly part of the reason is because David is such a success. Everyone loves a success, especially someone who's successful on their behalf. David's a hero to Israel, and he successfully fights Israel's battles. He's making Israel secure, and people like that. But of course, it's more than David merely being successful. It's also that David clearly has God's favor. I mean, that's what Saul's noticing. That's what other people are noticing. People can't help but realize that David's success doesn't come from himself. This is God bringing it about. There's an aura of divine blessing that just seems to follow David and permeate everything he's involved with. And if God's for David, wouldn't you want to be also? But what is it that connects David's success with divine favor? Is this random? No, it's the manner in which David attains his success. And I think this is probably the greatest reason why people love David. It's because he's a righteous man. He's a brave man. He's a man of faith. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been around a truly righteous person, a faith-filled person? Hopefully you have if you've been in our church, if you've been around mature Christians. There's something so attractive, even beautiful, about a righteous Person, a, a person of faith. This person's not perfect, but he's characteristically loving, he's humble, he's gentle, he's patient, he's steadfast amid difficulties, he faces challenges head on by faith and dependence on God, and he perseveres through times of temptation and trial to attain victory in the Lord. Have you ever met someone like that? If so, how do you regard that person? don't you love that person don't you just find yourself enjoying just being around that person that's because if you love God and you meet someone else who loves God to some degree and of course it's going to vary in the different relationships and different people but some degree your soul becomes knit to that person I mean your soul says to itself that person loves what I love that person loves whom I love therefore I love that person. That's why, and I'm sure many of you can attest to this, when you meet a true Christian who's like from the other side of the country or even the other side of the world, you just spend a few moments talking together and you suddenly feel like you've known them all your life. That's your family. That's because of that soul connection that believers have with one another in the Lord. You see, What's really happening when you behold genuine faith on display in a person's life is that you're beholding the beauty of God himself. Because let's face it, there's no good in any of us in and of ourselves, right? It's actually God in us. Or to refer to Galatians 2.20, Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. So when people see good, when they see faith, when they see righteousness, they're not really beholding you. They're beholding Christ in you. They're beholding God in you. And God is the father of lights. Is he not going to be attractive? Christ is the glorious and beautiful son. Is he not going to be delightful to witness? He surely is to the people of God. But of course, Christ is repulsive to the people of darkness. So even from... The rest of the scripture our own experience, we can see why so many would be drawn to David. Jonathan especially. I mean, Jonathan also is a man who loves God and is full of courageous faith. And then when he meets David, he beholds that David has that same spirit. He's a man of God. He loves God and he's bold for the Lord. So Jonathan just feels so close to David. He loves David, he feels knit to David, and he wants to see David succeed. And I'm sure David felt the same way toward Jonathan. It's a beautiful friendship, and it's a friendship that's based in the Lord. Of course, this is in great contrast to Saul. Saul fears David, but what is it that Saul fears most about David? Why does he dread David so much? Well, Saul sees David as a threat, and a threat to what in particular? Saul's kingship. Saul fears that David will take away the kingdom. And so what does this reveal about what Saul values and treasures most? It's the kingdom. It's his position as king over Israel. He thinks, if I lose this, then I'm undone. Remember, and we've talked about this before, whatever you fear most, it points to what your heart loves most, what you value most many times we can just call that by an alternative title, and that is, it is an idol. Your fears point to what you idolize, what you worship. Matthew 6.21 says, and this is a very biblical concept, that's why i bring up this other verse. Matthew 6.21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Saul's treasure was the kingship. He says, I must have the kingship, and I must have it for my sons. David was not trying to take away the kingship from Saul but Saul feared that it could happen and therefore he turned against David but again looking at the contrast between Jonathan and Saul what is the significance of Jonathan putting his robe and war equipment on David well certainly this is an act of love It's a gift. I mean, any gift is going to be an act of love. This is a gift from Jonathan to David. Here, take these things. It's also an act that affirms peace between the two of them. Unlike his father, Jonathan's not going to fight against David. He even gives his weapons and equipment over to David. But the most significant aspect of this action is Jonathan is symbolically relinquishing the kingdom itself to David. Because after all, think about it, Jonathan's robe, his armor, his equipment, they surely would have stood out from the rest of the clothing and equipment in Israel. Jonathan was the heir apparent after all. He was the prince. But now David is wearing the prince's clothing and armor. And it can't be that Jonathan is merely trying to affirm David as a member of the royal family. Here, let me put this armor on you because you're one of us now. Because remember, that development doesn't take place until later in the passage. This happens immediately after David's victory over Goliath. Really, Jonathan's covenant with David and this handing over of these these articles to David is an expression of love and support to David as God's next anointed king. Now we might ask, well, how did Jonathan know that David would be the next king? I mean, he basically just met the guy. Well, the text doesn't say. Perhaps Jonathan is aware of certain things that have been told Uh, to Jonathan about Saul and about David maybe Jonathan is aware of Samuel's words that the kingdom would be taken away from Saul and given to a better man or maybe he heard from David himself what Samuel had done for David or it may be that Jonathan as a lover of God he just sensed, he just seemed to understand that God was doing something special in and through this man David and that David surely was the next rightful king Jonathan will say to David later, pretty directly, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 17. 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan says, You will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. This is something that Jonathan realizes. And so, he symbolically hands the kingdom over to David. But we might ask, in addition, what would motivate Jonathan to do so? How could he give away something as important as the kingdom to this scrappy shepherd lad from Bethlehem? Well, again, it must come back to Jonathan's love for God, his contentment in God, and this manifests in a love for David. Jonathan doesn't need to grasp for the kingship because Jonathan already has God, and he wants God's will to be done above all. So if Jonathan or I mean if God wants David to be the next king, Jonathan is all for that. Please let it be because if God wants it, it's got to be good. Jonathan actually rejoices to see David become greater and Jonathan become less because it pleases God and advances God's purposes. Does this attitude remind you of anyone else in the Bible? Surely John the Baptist and Jesus, right? People John the Baptist's disciples came to him and they say, Hey, you know, he the one you baptized, he's got, he's baptizing more people now than you are. John the Baptist says, I'm glad. I want him to increase. Let him become greater and let me become less. That's the way it must be. We see the same thing with Jonathan. And again, in such a, a big difference, such a, a strong contrast between him and his father. Jonathan, unlike Saul, does not become fearful or jealous over David because Jonathan knows that David's blessing, really, is ultimately Jonathan's blessing. If David succeeds, then that pleases Jonathan. Really broadening out what we're seeing here. It's amazing how liberating contentment in God is when it comes to seeing the success of other people. Because how does the world react to others being more successful than they are? People of the world characteristically hate to see this. They hate to see others succeed in place of themselves, and for the same reason that Saul does. Because they fear the loss of their own treasures and position. But Christians should be different. Christians are those who gladly give up their treasures and their positions for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. And why are Christians able to do this? Because they already have secure and never can be taken away the greatest treasure of all, which is the Lord Jesus himself. They have the life giver. So why should they fear to lose anything in this world or to not achieve what someone else achieves? I say that should be true of Christians. Is it true of you? When you think about contentment, and you see Saul and Jonathan, which one are you more like? Are you like Jonathan who rejoices to see someone else become successful, especially when it pleases the Lord in a direct way? Or are you like Saul? You just really can't stand it when someone is more successful because you fear what it might mean for you. Yeah, Roy, that's an interesting comment. You say, Jonathan was a righteous man. It appears he would have made a great king, but that was not God's plan. God is sovereign. And you can see again how the flesh could really twist that. Hey, why can't I be king? I'd make a good king. I'm a righteous guy. But if he's a truly righteous guy, then he says, I'm not my will, but God's be done. The Lord is clearly with this guy. He'll be a great king for Israel. He's the one that the Lord wants, so he's the one that I want. I want to see David become king, and I'm going to do everything I can to support him. Well, Saul's fear and hatred of David, it only grows as we go into the next chapter. We're not going to take the time to read 1 Samuel 19 for the sake of time, but I do want to summarize some of the details that we see from this passage. In verses 1 to 7, we see the friendship of Jonathan at work on David's behalf, because... Saul, all of a sudden, he commands Jonathan and his servants to kill David. Hey, everybody, I've decided that David needs to die. But Jonathan instead warns David. He tries to reason with his father to call off this sinful and unjust command. Saul relents after hearing Jonathan's uh, intercession, and he swears by Yahweh not to kill David. So David is safe, and he returns to Saul's court. But then... Verses 8 to 10, just after David returns after, from another great victory against the Philistines, the evil spirit is on Saul again. He's got the spear nearby. David's trying to play music for Saul. And Saul again throws the spear at David. But David flees from the palace, and he goes into the night. So this is the third time David has escaped from a spear attack. And in verses 11 to 17, Saul's daughter Michael also saves David's life. Now remember, he's, Michael is David's bride at this point. David escapes back to their home, but Michael warns David, You got to get out of here immediately, or else they're going to come and capture and kill you. So Michael lets David down out the window, and then she sets up a ruse to uh, prevent or to delay Saul's pursuit of David. And then at the end of the chapter, verses 18 to 24, probably the most interesting way that God delivers David, uh, David flees to Samuel's hometown, Ramah. Samuel's still there, and he's there with a group of prophets. And Saul sends messengers after David to seize David. But when these messengers arrive, God's spirit comes upon the messengers and they start prophesying uncontrollably. They just start praising God and teaching the truth about God and they can't pursue David anymore. Saul sends three messengers. The same thing happens to them all. And then Saul comes himself to Ramah and Saul experiences a similar, uh, a similar taking over by the Holy Spirit. Except for Saul, actually, as he prophesies, he ends up taking off his clothes and taking off his armor and he lies there naked which is kind of a humiliation. All throughout this chapter, then, we see that King Saul is thwarted in every attempt to kill David, first by his own family and then by the Spirit of God himself. But Saul's not giving up, like wily Coyote. Saul's cooked up another scheme to get that roadrunner, and we see it in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 to 9. We're going to start with that. We'll look at the whole chapter, but... We'll start with just verses one to nine we're going to read this together follow along with me as i start reading in verse one then david fled from Nioth and ramah and came and said to jonathan what have i done what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life he said to him far from it you shall not die behold my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me so why should my father hide this thing from me it is not so Yet David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your sight. And he has said, "Uh, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. But truly, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, there is hardly a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I ought to sit down to eat with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field unto the third evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem his city because it is the yearly sacrifice there for the whole family. If he says, it is good, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, know that he has decided on evil. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh with you. But if there is iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I should indeed learn that evil has been decided by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you about it? We're going to pause there for a second to make some more observations. Notice in verses 1 to 3 that Jonathan does not believe that Saul really intends to kill David again. But David swears this is the case. Notice what he says in the end of verse 3. David says, As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, there's hardly a step between me and death. I don't know. That statement really sticks out to me because David's trying to bring across just how dire his situation is. Just one misstep, one delayed pace, and David will be captured and executed. I mean, don't get the impression that David is just so happy-go-lucky through all this. "Eh, You know, Saul's trying to kill me again. I guess I gotta run. Eh, Saul will get over it, and I'll be back in the palace soon enough. That's not David's attitude. This is a high stress, very much a fear-inducing situation. I don't think any of us know what it's like to be hunted by someone in power who wants to kill you. But that's David's situation, and it just keeps on happening. This is a hard, hard experience. But how to know whether Jonathan is right or wrong? Uh, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe Saul has regained his senses. He's not coming after me anymore. How to know? On well, verses 5 to 8, Jonathan asks um, Or David asked Jonathan to implement a ruse to discover Saul's true intent. David will be absent from a certain feast celebration before the king. The king is going to ask where David is. Jonathan is to say that David asked permission to celebrate a feast with David's family in Bethlehem and is therefore absent. If the king accepts this excuse, all's good. David's safe. But if the king is angry, the king wants David dead. Verse 9, Jonathan agrees to do as David asks. Now we're going to summarize verses 10 to 29, again for the sake of time. But the two men, they arrange to stealthily communicate the result of this ruse. They're going to use arrows and certain code phrases, and Jonathan will communicate to David whether it is safe for David to return to the court or not. And when the feast begins, Saul indeed notices that David is absent on the first day, but Saul says nothing. On the second day of the feast, though, Saul asked Jonathan where David is. Jonathan gives David's excuse, just as David told him to do. And let's see how Saul responds. Look at verses 30, and we'll read to the end of chapter in verse 42. 1 Samuel 20, verses 30 to 42. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. And Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and a little lad was with him. He said to his lad, Run, find now the arrows which I am about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, and do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as as we have sworn to each other in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will be, be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed, while Jonathan went into the city. Let's make a few final observations on this last section. Notice Saul's reactions to Jonathan's words on David's behalf in verses 30 to 34. Saul curses and berates Jonathan. He warns Jonathan, your kingdom will not be secure while David lives. And when Jonathan demands a just reason for David to be executed, Saul hurls a spear at Jonathan, his own son. So as we move to verses 35 to 40, we see Jonathan give the signal to David, warning David to flee and not stay, because David's life is indeed in danger. But notice verse 41. It says, After the boy leaves, the one who retrieved the arrows, David doesn't flee, but he instead reveals himself to Jonathan and falls on his face, bowing three times before Jonathan. Then the verse says that the two kissed each other and wept together. Now, you should know that men kissing in ancient Hebrew culture, it means something different than it typically does in modern American culture. It was considered appropriate for men to kiss in that culture as an expression of love and affection without any overtones of romance or sexuality. And we see this all over the scriptures. If you just look at the word kiss, if you go to Bible Gateway, for example, and you just type in kiss and you look where it appears in the Old Testament, you'll see actually that men are kissing men more often than men are kissing women in the Old Testament. It's not because there's some funny business going on it's just that's what their culture did you've got uh, Jacob kissing Esau you've got um, family members like a son or a father kissing one another and the same thing appears in the New Testament the Ephesian elders after Paul tells them I'm not going to see you anymore because I'm going to be put in prison it says in Acts chapter 20 that they fell on his neck and kissed him and wept Jesus is betrayed by a kiss from Judas in Matthew 26:49. And at the end of many letters in the New Testament, Christians are commanded to kiss one another, greet one another with a holy kiss, it says. Now again, that, that command and all these different things, they're part of the cultural context of that part of the world and at that time. It was considered fine. It was considered a, 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 even a, a, a beautiful expression of affection for men to kiss one another. And that's what we see happening here with Jonathan and David. And as for the weeping, let's remember that weeping is not considered unmanly in ancient cultures. Men, weeping was actually a great sign of love. And that's why the New Testament records that Jesus, when he weeps over Lazarus' death, what do the people say in response? John eleven thirty six, 36. See how he loved him. He weeps because he clearly loved him. And Jonathan and David, they're showing their love for one another, partly in just how they weep. At the idea of being parted. In verse 42, Jonathan and David, before leaving one another, they affirm a covenant of peace and faithfulness between the two of them before Yahweh and between their descendants. Well, with these observations on chapter 20, let's go again to interpretation. What is the significance of David bowing three times before Jonathan? Of course any bowing is going to be an expression of humility it's also going to be an expression of honor toward the one that you are bowing toward so david is sowing humility before jonathan trying to honor jonathan but bowing is also what one does toward a rightful ruler so in a kind of symmetry with what jonathan did for david before david here he seems to be acknowledging that he is not at all looking to usurp Jonathan's place as Prince of Israel he rather seeks to be completely faithful and supportive of his dear friend I'm not trying to take your position Jonathan I want you to be supported exactly where you are I'm your friend now I need to bring up a question that maybe has been in your mind just because of what people say about this passage do Jonathan and David have a homosexual relationship i mean let's look at the details Jonathan takes off his robe in front of David they talk to one another about their love a lot they kiss each other and David says of Jonathan later on in 2 Samuel 1 26 this is after Jonathan dies 2 Samuel 1 26 David says of Jonathan you have been very pleasant to me your love to me was was more wonderful than the love of women is this a homosexual relationship well, hopefully as you were following along as we did those observations you can see that this is not the case certainly there are many today especially those who are ignorant of the Bible who try to use Jonathan and David as validation of homosexuality in the Bible oh you condemn homosexuality don't you see that big homosexual relationship right in the middle of the Bible it's not the case This pro-homosexual interpretation is basically eisegesis. It's reading meaning into the text by not paying attention to the context of the details that appear and paying no attention to the cultural background of, of the accounts that we read. As we saw about kissing and as we even saw about Jonathan taking his robe off, this was not stripping down naked. This was a symbolic transfer of royal insignia. And we could explain those other details in a similar way. The Bible clearly condemns homosexuality as a sin, just as the Bible condemns many other sins. But the Bible does also make clear that two people of the same gender can love and care for each other in a deep way that is not romantic or sexual. In fact, this should be the case among believers. Of course, it's going to vary between different people and different relationships, but Christians should have deeply caring and affectionate relationships with one another without these overtones of infidelity. The world often just doesn't get this. They can't understand that kind of relationship, and it's because they don't know the Lord. You know, it's kind of funny, but throughout history, certainly true today, but even in the early church, Christians were slandered for immoral relations just because Christians had genuine love for one another christians in the early church they had what they called love feasts which was basically just a time of fellowship after the lord's supper where they ate together and they tried to express uh, affection and um, fellowship together but when the people the roman empire heard about it the pagans they're like oh those clearly that must be when they're having like an orgy or something they just slandered the christians because they couldn't understand that kind of love it's the same thing with dave and jonathan here there's nothing homosexual going on between these two this is just a true friendship deep friendship now it is kind of interesting though why do we hear so much about this friendship why does the author first samuel take so much time to tell us about jonathan and tell us about jonathan's relationship with david part of the answer has to be because of how instrumental jonathan was in david's life especially in protecting and encouraging his friend i mean think about it where would david have been if not for Jonathan. Multiple times, Jonathan intercedes for David's life or warns David to prevent David from being killed by Saul. From a human perspective, if David did not have Jonathan, David would have died. David would have been killed. It's very important that David had Jonathan in his life. But it wasn't just the physical protection. Jonathan was important for David for spiritual protection encouragement and fortification. David was refreshed by the fellowship that he experienced with Jonathan. David was encouraged by Jonathan's care. He was strengthened by Jonathan's reminders about Yahweh and about Yahweh's faithfulness. Again, if we just take a human perspective, God could have done something different, but if we just say, you take out Jonathan from David's life, what happens to David? Well, even if David did somehow survive, he would have been spiritually very low. He probably would have become discouraged, maybe even despairing, perhaps even turning his back on Yahweh. Because who's there? Who's there to strengthen David in the Lord if not Jonathan? You see, David really needed Jonathan. And Jonathan was there for David both to provide practical protection and spiritual encouragement. I mean... David was quite fortunate to have someone like Jonathan in his life, wasn't he? But was it really a matter of good fortune? Why did David experience the goodness of Jonathan's friendship? Was that just a happy circumstance, a random chance? No. This was the faithfulness of God on display in David's life in a very tangible way. The kindness that David experienced from Jonathan was ultimately God's kindness to David. God had said, I'm going to raise you up, David, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to be with you. And Jonathan is part of God fulfilling that word. God not only raised up Jonathan, but he gave Jonathan a righteous heart, and he knit Jonathan's soul to David's. This was the kindness of God. This was the love of God for David through Jonathan. And isn't this also true for Christian companions today? Think about those Christians who have been so encouraging in your life, or have had such an impact on you. Where do they come from? Was it just chance that you ran into those people? No. It was the love of God. It was God's care and kindness to you that he put those Christians in your life. Maybe they're family members. Maybe they're people outside of your family. But God an undeserved favor to you, he brought them into your life. Why did he do that? Because he knew you needed it, and because he chose to set his love on you. But Jonathan's not some random Israelite. I mean, God could have used a whole bunch of people to encourage David, but he chose Jonathan, Saul's son. Why? Why is that so significant? Well, don't you see? Doesn't it emphasize God's total control over David, over Saul, and over their whole situation? I mean, every scheme that Saul devises against David fails, and usually, at least in this portion of the scripture, it's due to Saul's own family turning against Saul and interceding on David's behalf. I mean, what are the chances of that happening? Saul's own family turning against him and supporting somebody outside the family? This is God at work. God saying, look, I'm in control. Look, I take Saul's own son, the person who should be most committed to keeping the kingdom for himself, and I'm going to make him David's best friend. I'm going to make him get into a covenant with David where he says, I'm going to support you no matter what, and I'm going to make sure that you become king. That is the sovereign power and grace of God on display. God will bring his word to pass, even if he has to turn the most unlikely people, and and move their hearts in surprising ways. That's what our God does. He is such a God. Uh, I'm reading the comment, Roy, that you mentioned. This friendship was ordained by God. Oh yeah, and just in a very practical perspective, having Jonathan, somebody so close to Saul, was part of David's protection. Jonathan could be the eyes and ears that could give David the information he needed to survive. So God is being very purposeful in raising up Jonathan as a friend to David. I'm looking at Mark's comment too. The unity of the word and the Holy Spirit mentioned in Philippians 2 verses 1 to 4, but also Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians uh, 4. That is the work of God on behalf of his people in a very gracious way, and we need it. That's why we are to be grateful for the unity and work to preserve that unity and to nurture our relationships with one another. We'll say more about that in just a second as we go to application. But I hope you see here, just in response to this last question, the faithful sovereignty of God, specifically displayed in how God used Jonathan to help David. So already you're probably seeing we've got several lines of application that we can draw from this text. The Spirit is showing us many different ways that we are to be encouraged and transformed by what God did with David and Jonathan. There are lessons here are about Christian contentment, about Christian friendship, about God's sovereignty, and about God's love. So how are we to be changed? What are some specific ways that we can apply the passage that we've just looked at? 1 Samuel 18 to 20. Of course, this is the third step in the inductive Bible study. We've got to talk about application. We can't just know what the text means. We need to see how it's supposed to work out in our lives. So let me suggest a few ways of application to you. These are not exhaustive, of course, but hopefully these will stimulate your thinking and get you thinking about uh, what we talked about today. One main application is that we must, brothers and sisters, we must trust God through troubles. I mean, God loved David. But God did not spare David from trouble. David actually, he did a mighty work on God's behalf. And then things got really hard for David. He, he's now a man on the run. There's someone, an evil man, who is seeking David's life. And only because David was doing the right thing. God ordained these things for David because God was going to use them to grow David. But also because God was going to display his glory through those difficult circumstances. By bringing Amazing deliverances like Michael, like the Spirit of God coming upon Saul's messengers and Saul himself, and like Jonathan. David wouldn't have seen those wonderful and mighty deliverances if God had not brought him into the trouble. And the same is going to be true for us. Brothers and sisters, when you do right, you will not be free from trouble. Jesus promises his disciples in the world you will have trial and tribulation. In fact, the more righteous you are, the more you try and stand up for me, perhaps the more trials you're going to experience. Because the world typically hates a righteous witness. But I am with you, Jesus says, and I have overcome the world. I'll deliver you. I will give you perfect provision during those times. Trust me. I'll bring you through. Brothers and sisters, you've got to believe that. Do you believe that? Stop just praying to the Lord. God, get me out of this trial. It's okay to pray for that. But you need to be praying... Lord, if you will it, bring me out. And if not, God, give me the grace to endure during the trial. Accomplish those glorious purposes that you have ordained for this trial. You'll bring me through. You might not see how. Your flesh will tell you, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't think you can trust God. But you've got to persevere. By faith, you've got to take the word over your own feelings and say, God doesn't lie. He showed himself faithful with David. He will show himself faithful with me. This is clearly one application. Trust God through the troubles. But part of God's provision for you during those troubles is the friends that he's put around you. So number two, seek out Christian friendships. Develop those. Nurture those. This, of course, starts with the most important friend of all, Jesus Christ. If you don't have Christ as your friend, as your Savior, as your Lord, then you are in a dire situation. You're worse than David would be without Jonathan because you have no one to protect you from the wrath of God your sin, your rebellion, your pursuit of your own way, instead of obedience and worship to the Lord, it has brought the wrath of God down upon you. His anger, his eternal punishment hangs over you. But Christ, as a friend, as a true friend, he came as a man to the earth, he lived a perfectly righteous life, and then he died a substitutionary death on behalf of his friends, on behalf of his people he repaid all their sin, and he gave his perfect righteousness to them. He imputed it to them so that they would be acceptable to God. If Jesus is your friend, if you love Jesus, if you trust Jesus, then you are eternally secure and you have eternal life. It starts there. Do you have Jesus as your friend? Because you need him. But if you do have Jesus as your friend, then you need the friendship of the others that are in the body of Jesus, the, the church. Your soul was designed by God to receive the ministry and fellowship and encouragement that is from the other believers in Christ's body. You need it, and they need it from you. You say, oh man, I sure could use a Jonathan in my life. Yeah, well, nurture those relationships. Seek out those relationships that will provide the same things that Jonathan did for David. But you know what? You can also be a Jonathan for somebody else. There are some people who really need encouragement and instruction and maybe even correction. And you know what? God is raising up you, yes you, whoever you are in the body, to be a minister to that person. You say, oh, I don't have any friends. I've been in the church a while. I don't have any friends. Well, part of it might be is because you haven't really sought them out. You do need to act. You do need to be, you can't be passive about this. But part of it also might be because you need to first be a good friend. There's something about just as people are attracted to David because of his righteousness, we're often repulsed by people who are unrighteous. We see their selfishness. We see their impatience. We see how they, they boil over in anger. And it's just like, oh, I don't know if I really want to be around that person. Of course, as believers, we still want to reach out to those people and, and help them. But if you're saying, ah, I'm looking for friends, well, you'll find it a lot easier to find friends if you start being a good friend. And by the way, it's the same thing for you young ladies and young men who are looking for a spouse. You should be more concerned about being the right spouse, being the right potential spouse, than finding the right potential spouse. And you'll find that when you are a person who's truly loving the Lord and content in Him, you're going you're to find yourself attracted to those who are like that, and those people are going to be attracted to you. And then you'll find yourself in a good Christian relationship. So certainly, from this passage, the Spirit is telling us We need to trust God through troubles. We need to seek out Christian friendships. We need to be also, and this goes with number two, thankful for the Christian companions that we have or that we have had. These were God's kindness to us in our lives. I can think of many different people that maybe they're not around me anymore, but God brought them into my life at a particular time. But I'm so thankful for that because I needed the instruction. I needed the discipleship. I needed the encouragement that these men And these people in my life provided. And the same is true for you, surely. Thank God, praise God for all the kindness he provided in bringing certain people into your life at certain times. Because just as God showed kindness to David in that way, so he has shown kindness to you. And then finally, one other application from this passage, surely, is that we need to rejoice in other successes for God's sake. I mean, this is Christian contentment at its core. If you know God, you ought to be content. You ought to say, it doesn't matter whether others succeed and I don't succeed as well because I've got God. And if God wants them to succeed, praise the Lord. God has a good purpose in that. If God doesn't want me to succeed in that way, well, then I accept that. Of course, I'm not talking about when it comes to sanctification, like, oh, I don't need to worry about overcoming this sin. I'm talking about just the prosperity of your life or maybe the, the, the scope of your ministry. I remember hearing a story one time that I thought was pretty poignant about a Christian pastor who was ministering in in the same time and in the same area as Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was, of course, that great preacher from the 1800s in England. Powerful preacher. Many people were drawn to his church. Many people were saved through Spurgeon's ministry. But this other pastor, he had a church near Spurgeon's. It was a small church. And one Sunday... He's preparing for his sermon, preparing for the service, and he looks out the window, and he sees all these people walking by his church. Walking by, they're not stopping at his church. They just keep on walking, and he knows exactly where they're going. They're going to Spurgeon's church. Because Spurgeon's such a great preacher. And you can imagine the temptation that comes with that. How this man might respond in his heart. But you know how he responded? He stopped, And he prayed and he praised God he said Lord thank you thank you for raising up such a servant like Charles Spurgeon Lord use him make him even more effective make even more people go to his church God because that's what I want to see I want to see people go into your kingdom and whether they go through Spurgeon or they go through somebody else Your will be done Lord I want to be more faithful help me to be more faithful but Lord I praise you for what you're doing through that man. Brothers and sisters, we need that same perspective. When we see others succeeding, becoming effective for the Lord, praise God, even if they're more effective than us. Of course, we always want to improve, but we say, God, thank you. Make that person more effective. Or even just the other little things, maybe not related to ministry specifically in our lives. You say, God, I was trying so hard in my job, but this other believer in the church, he's doing really well in his job. Thank you, God. Thank you for being so kind to him. Or, God, I really wanted this this one house. You know, it looked like it had everything that we wanted, but somebody else bought it before we could. Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing kindness to that person by letting them enjoy this house. Lord, you'll provide something for us in your your perfect way, in your perfect time. We're not going to miss out, really, on anything that we need. Thank you for the grace that you've shown to others. We can do that The world can't do that, but we can do that because we have the Lord. We already have the greatest treasure. So we don't have to worry about others obtaining more of a particular earthly treasure than we have. Yeah, Mark mentioned Psalm 84.10. To be a mere doorkeeper in the house of God is a greater honor than anything else, than dwelling in even the, the luxurious tents of wickedness. We should be surprised, actually. We should be amazingly grateful when we, like Mephibosheth, who actually is Jonathan's descendant, who David shows kindness to, when Mephibosheth experiences that kindness, he says, who am I? Who am I that I should experience such kindness from you? And so it should be in our lives. We shouldn't say, oh, why didn't I get what that person got? Instead it ought to be, Lord, thank you for any of the kindness that you've shown me. I'm not worthy of it all, of of any of it. And yet, Lord, I know that whatever you've given me is exactly what I need for this time and this place you're a good father i can trust that so hope that you'll consider these applications that the lord would also move you in your life to put them into practice well that's all for this week if you have more comments or questions about what you heard today please post them in the chat i'd love to interact with you about them afterwards or you can send me an email at davkaposha at gmail.com next week well we hear more about the life of david Saul, he's not giving up on trying to kill David. He's going to hunt David even in the wilderness. And God is going to bring Saul right into David's grasp so that David has the opportunity to kill Saul. But will David do it? And if not, why not? Talk about that next time. Let me close our time in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the friends. We thank you for the Christian friends. And Lord, even the non-Christian friends, but especially the Christian friends that you've brought in our lives. People who could help us especially in spiritual ways just like jonathan helped david that was your kindness to david and it is your kindness to us lord help us to have that same perspective as jonathan did which is i don't need to grasp anything in this world if i succeed and i don't that's okay because god's purposes are being fulfilled i want the lord's will and god will provide for me lord you will provide for us perfectly at the perfect time in the perfect way I pray, Lord, that we would be men, women, and children of faith who would actually believe that and live like that. Lord Jesus, Spirit of God, accomplish this in the lives of your people. And those that don't know you, God, those who don't even have you as a friend, I pray that they would even today, that they would repent and believe in the only Savior and only God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all again for joining me in this time of study today. If you'd like to post something in the chat, I'd love to talk with you more, but otherwise I'll see you next time. And hope to see you in the live stream service at 11 o'clock.